mental health. Obesity. Sexual health. Diabetes. Supporting men's health and patient care. Building knowledge in men's health communities. Welcome back to the Men's Health Podcast. In today's episode, we'll be talking about a particular area of men's health that is fairly misunderstood in both the general public but also within healthcare as well. It's a topic that simply isn't talked about enough, and that is male infertility. And so joining us today on the Men's Health Podcast is a renowned expert in male infertility. My name is Cheryl Homer. I'm clinical director of Andrology Solutions, which is a clinic that focuses on male infertility. And I also have an honorary position at University of Kent in my role as honorary professor of andrology in the Department of Biosciences. So fertility and or even especially male fertility, it's a particularly niche uh, and specific topic within, within medicine. So, so what made you interested in getting into the field in the first place? So my background is that I am a biochemist originally, and uh, I had been involved in a lot of research into reproductive biochemistry. And during that time, I had an opportunity to um, be trained in uh, embryology. And I worked for some time as an embryologist in various IVF clinics in the NHS and private sector. And during my time there, it became very obvious to me that the male side was completely marginalized. And as a scientist, it didn't really make much sense to me that we ignored 50% of the contribution to creating an embryo. So I decided to set up my own clinic that would be dedicated to investigating male infertility. But how many men are infertile? Or do we simply not know the true prevalence? Because being such a sensitive condition, many men may not feel comfortable actually talking about it or coming to visit their doctor in the first place. That's true. But there have been quite a lot of studies looking at this question. And it seems like approximately one in 12 men, certainly in the UK, would experience infertility. And some studies have quoted more than 30 million globally that would be affected by infertility, male infertility. So how do we actually diagnose a male infertility in, in practice? Is it simply a case of when a man hasn't been able to impregnate a woman, we would diagnose that as, as male infertility, or are there other diagnostic procedures involved? So male infertility manifests itself in many ways, but there is a gold standard test that we can do for male infertility, which is the semen analysis, which actually looks at the sperm and aspects of the male accessory glands. It doesn't diagnose the problem, but it gives us an indication as to whether or not there might be a problem. And does the semen analysis tell us everything then we, we need to know about the quality of the man's sperm? You mentioned there it was the gold standard, um, but are there certain features that simply cannot pick up? So that's a very good question. And that brings us to really the heart of the problem itself is that for, for decades, we have been focusing just on looking at the sperm under the microscope. And of course, that's very limited in what it can tell us about the molecular functioning of the sperm. How does the sperm function when it gets to the egg? The semen analysis is very good at telling us 
if the sperm are able to get to the egg. Are there enough sperm? Are they moving well enough? But what it doesn't tell us is anything about the uh, function of the sperm when it actually gets to the egg. Can it recognise the egg? And can it deliver the genetic material into the egg that is healthy to enable a healthy embryo to develop? These are not questions that can be answered by a semen analysis. But of course, we now know there is a lot of evidence out there that's emerged over the last 45 years or so to show that DNA, the genetic material of the sperm, is likely to be damaged or fragmented in men who are infertile. And a semen analysis is not going to tell you. So how do we actually measure uh, DNA damage then? So when you talk about DNA damage, that's also um, a sort of a huge area. What we can measure is something called DNA fragmentation, where the, the strands of the DNA are actually broken. And there are tests available to measure this. Um, what they don't show you are other structural defects in the DNA, and they don't really address issues of major chromosomal anomalies either. Many men may request a semen analysis from their local GP or sexual health clinic, relying on the GP's or clinic's expertise for what the results actually mean. As we'll discuss in further detail, there's a severe lack of training and understanding among the healthcare professional community for how to correctly interpret a semen analysis. Some men may receive a normal result and think they are fertile, but this won't always be the case. So... Uh, we hear this a lot. I hear this a lot with patients who visit their doctors and they are given the result of their semen analysis. The doctor will look at the count and the motility and say, it's absolutely fine. There's nothing wrong with you. Unfortunately, we know that 30% of men have what we call unexplained infertility, where the semen parameters are perfectly normal, but they cannot achieve a pregnancy with their partners. And if we look at the sperm, we do a DNA fragmentation test, we often see that this is very high. So I think it's it's a false security to think that if you have a good semen analysis result, that this is going to result in a pregnancy. And actually the standards for semen analysis make it very clear that the reference values are not a a cliffhanger, whereas if you are above the reference range, you're fine. And if you're below the reference range, you're not. Because either way, you can achieve normal, healthy pregnancies, even if your sperm quality appears to be very poor on a semen analysis and vice versa. So there could potentially be quite a number of men who have initially been uh, diagnosed as fertile through a, a normal semen analysis that are actually still uh, infertile and they may not even know it. Absolutely. And I, unfortunately, I think this happens more often than we would definitely like. Um, I think uh, there, there is a lot of misinformation given to patients um, from um, GPs who have no training in, in male infertility whatsoever. They don't have any training at all. Um, and I think a lot of patients are under the, the misconception, excuse the pun, <laughs> that if they have a normal semen analysis, that there's nothing they need to worry about. I would say 
I, well, I would actually caveat that to say that if you have a normal semen parameters, you're more likely to be fertile. Um, but um, you shouldn't sit on your laurels. You should be very wary that if things are not happening, um, that there are further advanced tests that you should have because it's not the whole story. It's only part of the story. Your semen parameters are re reflective of your general health. I think this is very important. We're talking about um, a condition, uh, a disease. Um, WHO defines infertility as a disease. So it's not just about women. It is about men as well. And I think very importantly, if you have poor semen parameters, you must get that checked out to see if it's a secondary effect of an underlying condition. We also know that the leading known cause of male infertility is not lifestyle, unless, of course, you, you are addicted to certain things. But the leading known cause of male infertility is a condition, an underlying condition called a varicocele. I would always recommend that if people do have poor semen parameters, they need to ask their doctor to verify whether or not they have a varicocele. A varicocele is an enlargement of the veins within the loose bag of skin that holds the testicles, which is the scrotum. A varicocele can occur when the blood pools in the veins rather than circulating efficiently out of the scrotum. We also know that the male accessory glands are very important in maintaining good sperm health and good sperm function. So if they get infected, male accessory gland infection, for example, can cause a lot of problems for your fertility, for your semen parameters, and that needs to be investigated. One of the things that men um, are very poor at is going to the doctor when they have problems. And a typical thing that I see time and time again is when men have urological symptoms, and they may be just occasional urological symptoms. But a lot of men tell me that, well, Men in their 30s would say, I'm getting a bit older, so I expect this to happen. No, this is not correct. You should not be getting urological symptoms at any age, because if you do, that is an indication that something is going awry. So what, what are the treatment options then for a, for a man who is, is infertile? I, I imagine, as, as you kind of discussed, it probably depends on, on the cause. Yes, it very much depends on what the causes are. Um, obviously, if there's male accessory gland infection, one can treat with antibiotics. If one has a varicocele, then varicocele repair can be an option as well. And the studies show significant improvements in semen parameters, a reduction in DNA damage, reduction in oxidative stress, and an increased chance of spontaneous pregnancy, about a 35% chance of pregnancy with varicocele repair, which is as good as, or if not better than IVF, and also an improvement in IVF success rates with varicocele repair as well. We're seeing more and more men go through uh, in vitro fertilisation, which is uh, IVF. And IVF is the process where the mature eggs are collected from the ovaries uh, and fertilised by the sperm in, in a laboratory. Uh, then the fertilised eggs um, are transferred to the uterus. And this comes at a huge financial cost. And for many men, after a negative semen analysis, uh, the next step is typically IVF treatment. 
either a decision made by their own research or as recommended uh, by their GP. But is this a a necessary process for them to go through? Um, Is it a a logical next step for them? Or or could they be missing out on on potentially treating a a different underlying cause to to their infertility? Well, I, uh, from my own personal experience from working in IVF and from my discussions with the patients that I see, I do feel that a lot of uh, patients um, may be going to IVF too quickly. Um, It may also be unnecessary. And I think that the arguments to say that women don't have any time, you must put them through IVF come what may, is I, I, I don't think that argument really stands because if you can discover a problem with the man... Um, usually you're looking at about three to four months to repair it and repair the sperm quality. You know, any woman in her 30s, late 30s, would be fine with a three to four month wait to sort out what's going on with the partner. And of course, they may not even need IVF at the end of it. But I, I do think there is a serious issue with people being pushed into IVF, which is not a cure it is a circumvention of the problem. It doesn't fix the problem. And it it would almost be like if you had a heart condition, that the first thing you would be advised by your doctor would be to have a heart transplant because there's no time to waste. I don't think in any other area of medicine you would be pushed into having the most advanced treatment without ensuring that you could do everything you could possibly without um, the need for uh, invasive treatment that isn't guaranteed to work anyway. And I guess as as touched on earlier, it can come at a a great cost as well for for the couples involved. I have seen couples remortgage their homes. Um, I have seen couples go through umpteen IVF treatment cycles with no evidence base as to why they should continue to do this when it, it continuously fails. There isn't any evidence to show that success rates improve once you've had three or four treatment cycles of IVF. And yet, patients aren't properly investigated. You wouldn't have any other area of medicine where patients are not fully investigated um, before being pushed through for major treatment that, as you say, is hugely costly not just to the patients, but think of the NHS. The NHS only has a limited amount of funds that they can pay for IVF treatment for patients. And if those funds are misused, they're used for couples that might be able to be treated outside of IVF, then that's taking money away from patients who really need it. And I think we really need to focus more on who really needs it and try and divert uh, the patients away from IVF who might be managed with treatment outside of IVF. Often many doctors will say the best form of treatment is prevention and certain factors or variables that a man can control or has some control over uh, is his his diet and and lifestyle. Um, So so what role does diet and and lifestyle in general have on, on sperm quality and fertility? So... Lifestyle and diet does have a considerable impact. I think it's very important that 
men look at their sperm as if they are pregnant carrying their sperm. The reason I say that is because almost everyone would frown upon looking at a heavily pregnant woman who was smoking or drinking. And actually, the fetus is quite well protected by the placenta against toxins. So as bad as it looks, there is some protection there for the fetus. When sperm are developing, there is no protection in the testes against toxins that are coming from the blood supply. They, have, they don't have the benefit of a placenta. And that sperm, while it is developing, is collecting all the information it needs to pass on that information, that genetic information, that healthy genetic information to the embryo, which will then be passed on into every single cell of that embryo and, and passed on for that child's health for the rest of its life. So it's three months that those sperm develop where they become very vulnerable to the toxins that they're experiencing. So they shouldn't smoke. They should be very mindful about the alcohol consumption that they are partaking. Recreational drugs is not an option. Um, and they should really be careful about the heat exposure to the testes because, of course, the testes are outside of the body. They're at 33 to 34 degrees. They need to be at that temperature because that's the temperature that the enzymes function at um, that are responsible for spermatogenesis. It's not uncommon for men to look in line for natural remedies or supplements to help treat or even cure a condition they may be worried about. Unfortunately, the supplement and nutrition industry is generally not as well regulated as the medical industry, meaning patients can freely access a variety of supplements that may well cause more harm than good. So, are there supplements out there that can help with male infertility? That's a very, very important question and also something that we should uh, make people aware of what they're actually doing. As a scientist, my question is, what are these supplements? How are they working? What do they do? In the main, the majority of these supplements are antioxidants. Antioxidants reduce oxidative stress, which is well known to cause problems for sperm motility, for sperm morphology, for sperm fertilization, um, and for embryo development. And it also is the leading known cause of DNA damage. So therefore, if you take a supplement that is an antioxidant, you would imagine that it would improve things for you. And if you have oxidative stress uh, in around uh, where the sperm are being um, produced or at, you know, in the ejaculate, they can be extremely helpful. The problem is if you don't have oxidative stress, they're not going to help you. And this is why the literature is very ambiguous, because a lot of the studies have done looking at groups of fertile men versus infertile men and giving some supplements or some placebos. The problem is that not all fertility is infertility is related to oxidative stress. So unless your group of men are specifically selected with oxidative stress, the study results can be all over the place. And this is why it's, it, when you look at the literature, it's very contraindicatory. From the studies that we know, there are supplements that have been developed that have more 
uh, research and development behind them. And they've actually created the combination of vitamins and minerals that have been shown to have positive effects on sperm quality and function. There are other supplements that haven't been so well developed. So you have to be careful about what you're using. The other thing is very important to understand is taking too many supplements. And this is what a lot of people do. They may take a supplement because their doctors recommended it, but then they read online that this herb is important and this supplement is helpful. So they take that too. Or their friend or their partner is taking something, recommending something else. And they end up taking a whole host of supplements. And what that does is it puts them into what we call reductive stress. It goes the other way. In biology and nature, nothing is black and white. It's all a question of balance. And we need oxidants, which are essential fertilization. The problem is we don't want too much of it. It has to be at the right balance. So we need to be very careful about not overdosing because we can wipe out the essential low levels that are required as well. And there's plenty of people out there who are overdosing on these supplements who are infertile because they're overdosing. Men's health is yet to receive the same degree of awareness as women's health. We see this across numerous men's health issues. There's a fundamental lack of awareness of men's health, both in society where many men will fail to pick up on common symptoms of men's health issues, but also within healthcare, where doctors fail to inquire about specific symptoms of men's conditions with their male patients. This may be contributing to one of the many striking inequalities that exist between men and women's health, such as that men are almost twice as likely to die from a preventable cause than women. So, with the lens on male infertility for this episode, is this a well-understood area of health? The answer to that is no. I think we have a real problem with male infertility on all levels. If we look at it from a social point of view, it has always been swept under the carpet. It's for, you know, for time immemorial, it's always been considered a woman's problem. It's only really in the last century that people started to address it as a possibility in men. So I think um, socially it, it is an issue. Um, I think that um, we have issues with information that we're provided at school. At school, m boys are always taught how to use condoms and never get a girl pregnant. So they in their minds, they think even if they just look at a girl, they'd get them pregnant if they weren't using condoms. And this is the way that they leave school. I think certainly um, GPs, as I've mentioned before, unfortunately, it's not part of the curriculum in, in training in medicine anywhere in the UK. Doctors in training, medical students, are not given any information about male infertility. And I think this then becomes a problem because what do the patients do when they think they've got a problem? They go to their GP. And the GP then has to try and determine how best to deal with that patient. Invariably, they will perform a semen analysis as the only standard test available. They get the result. Not all GPs are able to um, interpret a detailed semen analysis. Um, and invariably, the patient is then 
sent off. Um, they're triaged incorrectly. They're just sent off to an IVF clinic if there's a problem. So I think these are real issues because the whole system needs to be changed. We need to educate our children from an early age. We need to educate our medical students in, in male infertility. And we need to be able to give the GPs the correct process for triaging. And obviously that process needs to be referral to a urologist who specialises in andrology and male infertility. And I can tell you there are, I believe, less than 200 of them around in the UK. There are thousands of gynaecologists in the UK. And I think this definitely needs to be changed. And so there are probably many men who um, are infertile and for whatever reason, whether it's uh, an incorrect diagnosis at their, their GP or, or local semen analysis, um, or it's simply the fact that they don't actually want to forthcome to their doctors in the first place to discuss um, about their concerns of, of infertility. Um, it, do you think not getting the correct diagnosis with infertility or not even getting it uh, explored in the first place uh, is a big risk uh, for the men themselves. Um, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, 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 is it a serious condition, male infertility? So I think um, if the condition is caused by an underlying systemic illness, then of course it has implications, which is why I think it's absolutely essential that, that we check patients for that. Um, in terms of other issues, we can look at things such as uh, male accessory gland inflammation or infection, which will only deteriorate if it's not looked at. And as I said before, men are notoriously bad at going to the GP and telling them they have a problem, which is why when you get men in their 50s um, having serious prostate issues, it's because they haven't addressed them when they're younger. In terms of having varicocele, if that's not picked up, again, that could lead over time to some pretty poor discomfort, testicular discomfort. So I think there are health implications that we do need to look at. One of the biggest obstacles in men's health is the fact that men are less likely to engage in help-seeking behaviours. So let's take mental health as an example. Compared to women, men in the UK are 58% less likely to receive mental health treatment. And this remains true even after accounting for differences in the prevalence of mental health issues between men and women. So the National Institute of Health analysed many different studies to identify why men are less likely to engage in these help-seeking behaviours. And they noticed a few consistent themes. Men are more likely to conform to the traditional masculine norms and they project their health issues differently. And for men, there's a large degree of stigma associated with different health issues such as mental health and sexual health. But this remains true for all areas of health with men. Recent surges in men's health campaigns are providing helpful resources to make it easier for men to speak to their doctors about any health concern. So does Professor Homer think that men are getting better at speaking out about their infertility concerns? I do think that men are getting better. I'm encouraged by that. I really do think that men men are getting better at discussing that. I think it's it's relevant that in the media a lot is being made now about talking about our mental health in general. And of course, one thing that is extremely important about male infertility that we shouldn't overlook 
is the tremendous emotional and mental health impact this can have on men when they are diagnosed with infertility. It is absolutely crushing for uh, a lot of men. And um, I think it's very important that we address that and we always discuss that with our uh, patients when they come to see us when they have these, um, when they have this diagnosis. So as briefly touched upon, that the, there are certain campaigns out there that are really driving up and raising awareness of specific men's health issues, um, especially mental health. Uh, it's discussed a lot in the media and also within uh, society in general. Um, but do you feel that male infertility has its fair share of, of media attention and, and campaigns? And, and is it discussed enough within society as well? I don't think it is. I am encouraged that it is more talked about, but I think we have a, a long, long way to go. And I do think it's so important to raise this issue I think in the extreme, where men are diagnosed with azoospermia, with no sperm in the ejaculate, and where it, they've been unsuccessful with surgical sperm retrieval, I have had several patients who are virtually suicidal, and they will not discuss it very often with their partners because they feel so incredibly responsible for failing to... Um, give their partners the most important thing in their lives. And it is the most devastating situation. But of course, there are, there are other issues that um, men don't want to talk about because they feel that um, it would totally emasculate them I don't think there is enough awareness out there about the huge impact that being diagnosed with infertility can do to a man. There are plenty of support groups out there um, for women. Um, mental health and emotional well-being is discussed constantly for women when they're diagnosed with infertility. But it's, it's just a kind of an add-on or, or forgotten about for the men. Having said that, there are a couple of extremely good support groups out there for men. Um, one is called the Him Fertility and the other is the Male Fertility Forum. The former was um, set up by Rod Gilbert, um, who did the most amazing job to raise awareness for male infertility and um, for, uh, for men only. Um, and the same thing for uh, Gareth Down, who set up the Male Fertility Forum, um, to create a space where men could talk to other men with no women around, where they could just discuss their issues. And men feel very safe in that environment. There are very few support groups out there that just allow men that safe space where they can talk about their infertility. So I think they've done an amazing job creating those Facebook groups. No, I think that's. Um, I think they're great, and I think in, on 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 some level, it's almost better uh, for them to be speaking about these issues with people who have also shared similar experiences, uh, and they can have that level of of empathy uh, compared to maybe you know family or friends where there may not be that understanding there of of what it's actually like to experience infertility. 
Um, but, but something we ask uh, many of our guests on, on, on the Men's Health podcast is, uh, is about busting some of the biggest myths uh, within uh, you know, your, your speciality. And obviously with male infertility, I imagine there's numerous different things which must, uh, must bug you. But is there one particular myth that you would actually like to get rid of? Yes. So I think one of the, the, the things that um, often troubles me is when patients come and tell me that um, they've been told by their doctors that um, they are infertile, but there's no point in investigating any further because there's nothing you can do about male infertility. There is a lot that you can do about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's um, that's, that's really important. And what about for for men who are maybe looking for some resources or information to learn more about uh, infertility or or men's health issues in general? Um, are there any good resources you would actually uh, recommend? I think there are uh, lots of um, avenues on the internet. For example, your particular website, which uh, tries to bring out some of the, the, the focus on on the main issues. You know, if there's one thing I would recommend to men who are diagnosed with male infertility is that they should ask to be referred to a urologist who specializes in andrology. They should not allow themselves to be sent off to see a gynecologist in an IVF clinic. And I think that would be the, the, the most important thing for them to do. There are some very good andrology departments in a lot of the hospitals in the UK. They are few and far between, but I think those are areas that they need to go for medical advice. Um, Professor Homer, thank you so much for, for, for joining us on the Men's Health Podcast. It's been uh, great to have you discuss about such uh, an important issue and, and hopefully uh, this episode and the work you continue to do uh, will really help uh, drive forward and evolve uh, the, the field of male infertility. Thank you so much, Joe. I really enjoyed it. A big thank you to Professor Homer for joining us today uh, on the Men's Health Podcast. Um, and do keep an eye out for future episodes as we'll be joined by other leaders and, and experts in the field of men's health. Mental health. Obesity. Sexual health. Diabetes. Supporting men's health and patient care. Building knowledge in men's health communities.